Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Progressive Bitcoiner. I'm your host, Trey Walsh, and today we have on the show Ben DeWall. And we're starting a series. We'll see how many of, of these episodes we do probably for a while now that's focused on Bitcoin. And this one in particular is what is Bitcoin? So getting into the fundamentals of Bitcoin. And really, this was spurred on, as I discussed in the episode, from a friend of mine who said, OK, you know, I've heard about the human rights arguments, the environmental arguments about Bitcoin mining and things like that that we love to talk about on this show. But, you know, what are the fundamentals behind Bitcoin? Like, what is it? How does it work? So that's exactly what we try to tackle as concisely as possible in about an hour and a half with this episode with Ben. And we'll be sure to do others as well um, throughout the year, focusing on this, you know, anticipating a bull run, anticipating more people getting into Bitcoin, becoming curious. We want to provide some context and provide some fundamental uh, videos and podcasts for folks as well to learn about Bitcoin and, you know, how it works, what's going on, Bitcoin mining, proof of work, lightning, you know, why does it have value? Does it have value? All of these different topics we cover in this episode and many more that we'll be doing. So we'd definitely love your feedback um, on this episode. And as always, you can reach out uh, and give us feedback on this show and, you know, what things we might have missed, uh, what you want to hear more from, from us, you can reach out to me at hello at progressivebitcoiner.com. But Ben, some of you might know Ben, who he's been around in this space for quite a while, being in Bitcoin since 2013. He's a software developer. Um, he's a cypherpunk, I would say, uh, really passionate about these things. He's worked at companies like Swan, and now he's doing a lot of Bitcoin consulting for different companies and projects, focusing on Bitcoin and engineering, architecture, things like that. So he was the perfect person to talk to about Bitcoin fundamentals. We used a lot of analogies. We got a little technical in some areas. So if, if some of it was a little too complex for you, as I've mentioned in this conversation, that's okay. You know, we've given you some good nuggets to think about and to dig deeper into, which will provide more resources um, in the coming weeks uh, about. So hopefully this was a good intro to some, whether you're a veteran or whether you're new to Bitcoin, I think there's something for everyone in this episode and, and really uh, enjoyed this conversation with Ben. So thank you so much, Ben, for coming on and encourage all of you to share this episode very far and wide for people that want a better understanding of Bitcoin. All right, before we get to the episode, do not forget about our promo and discount links from Bitbox and SAS Mining in the show notes. And I want to encourage you all to check out our Substack as well, where we have a weekly newsletter and episodes of the podcast delivered directly to your inbox. So you can sign up for that free uh, newsletter today. All right, I will let you get to the episode and we will see you again next week. Hello, Ben. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really excited to get into to this conversation. As I kind of described to folks on, on Twitter and described to you, um, and I'll say it for those listening that haven't seen these previous messages, um, one thing that spurred me on to have this conversation of, of what is Bitcoin is I was literally hanging out with a friend a few weeks ago. The same friend who's been slowly getting into, into Bitcoin and stuff like that is really into um, coins and gold coins and understanding sound money, one of, one of those types. Yep. And, you know, our show, very specifically, we focus a lot on progressive value stuff like the environment and, you know, fighting FUD from the left on like environment, you know, uh, Bitcoin mining, uh, human rights, like why Bitcoin is really important. So I think we're doing a relatively good job of that because a lot of friends I have are like, oh, I see that Bitcoin is like relevant. Uh, I see that like it's important in the world and the use cases. But I've had a few friends, including this friend I just described, say, but like what, you know, what is it? Like, how, how does it work? Like, what are the fundamentals? Like, 
he's like, Are, can you recommend any things to me? Which, you know, I have recommended several videos and there's a lot of folks, you know, talking about that and doing good work in that. And I was like, well, you know what, from our platform, why don't we take a stab at it? Some of these episodes that can be, I mean, it's hard to make anything in Bitcoin that's truly timeless, right? But but an episode that you could float around for a few months, um, a year or two and say, you know, this is kind of gets into some some fundamentals of of Bitcoin. So I plan on doing this with you. Um, as I've said, I plan on doing this with other guests because each guest will have different thoughts on what is some of the most important things to cover in Bitcoin. So you had sent over a few topics to me that I'm really excited to get into. Now, for those uh, guests that are kind of coming into the podcast that I hope this podcast will be widely, widely shared with those that aren't in the Bitcoin ecosystem and really just looking for what is Bitcoin, this might be the first pod they they hear from us or a Bitcoin pod. Um, can you give people a little bit of a background of of who you are? I mean, you've got a lot of different things in, in your background that I think are really interesting and exciting, but if you want to give people a little background uh, to who you are. Sure thing. Um, I'm always careful with this question, you know, who am I? Because, uh, yeah, like you just said, you know, there's a lot in my background. I could mm -hmm. talk for far too long on that. So kind of the brief version and probably what's relevant um, uh, to your audience um, is uh, I come from a technical background primarily. Um, I actually studied a few different things in my career. I've actually gone through um, things like neuropharmacology. Um, I'm a qualified and licensed private investigator in the state of New South Wales, Australia. Um, I've studied linguistics formally. So a bunch of stuff like that. But most of my career was spent as a software developer. So I've spent most of my career writing software. Um, I moved from there more into then um, architecture, management, that kind of thing. So basically, you know, figuring out how best to put bits of software together, how best to uh, organize teams that create bits of software. And along with that comes a lot of kind of educational stuff. So not only is it managing teams, teaching people how stuff works and figuring out uh, you know, how all of these pieces fit together and then explaining why that's the best way for all of these pieces to fit together. So that's kind of my formal background. Um, as it happens, um, I've been um, an anarchist most of my life. So politically speaking, um, so left-wing, uh, very uh, focused on the idea of reducing um, the interference of any kind of unnecessary hierarchies. So that includes things not only um, like governments, but also like corporations and so on. You know, at some point, the distinction gets blurred anyway, and that's always been a big problem of mine. So um, I discovered Bitcoin and said, this is something which aligns with my values. This is something which aligns with my interests. That was around 2010 that I first discovered Bitcoin. At the time, um, though, I was... Uh, just about to become a father um, and lots of other stuff was happening in my life. So I kind of shelved it for a few years, kind of rediscovered it in 2013 and said, hold on, this thing's not dead yet. What's what's going on? Why why has this thing not been you know, turned off? Why hasn't the government come along and figured out how to shut it down? So I looked it into, it into it in more detail and said, hold on, they can't. This is actually something really valuable. This is something really interesting. Um, you know, this is actually money by the people for the people um you know we need to figure out you know what can we do with this how can we uh you know make bitcoin um into the global monetary standard um and of course that's uh you know kind of when i said okay i have to start doing more in this space um so left my fiat job my uh you know traditional old job um in 2017 and i've been working in the bitcoin space ever since I've worked for some relatively large, well-known companies in the space, like Lightning Labs, um, like Swan Bitcoin, 
Um, but aside from um, those, you know, I've also been spending most of my time as an independent consultant, um, helping individuals and especially companies um, integrate Bitcoin into their systems, into their workflows, um, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, at the moment, I'm working very closely with a company called Musket, um, who are essentially a merchant solutions organization. So, um, you know, making next generation Bitcoin based merchant solutions. Very cool. And and I'll also add, because I know you've talked about it many times before, not for us to go super in depth here in this conversation, but for folks to know, like you, you live, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, on a relatively Bitcoin standard. I so not only are we going to talk about fundamentals of Bitcoin, but you're also someone that practices what you preach in terms of your, your living on Bitcoin and whatever, um, you know, challenges and opportunities that proposes. Yep, exactly. So not only have I worked in the space since 2017, that was also when I realized, you know, if I'm going to be dedicating this much of myself to it, uh, you know, I need to practice what I preach. I need to, you know, um, walk the talk. So um, I put myself on a bit, myself and my family on a Bitcoin standard, and we've uh, been essentially living on Bitcoin since then. Um, just, you know, like you said, it's not the main topic for today, but just to um, make sure everyone doesn't get the wrong impression from that, uh, I cannot spend Bitcoin everywhere in my daily life. You know, there are plenty of places out there where I need to buy something and they won't accept Bitcoin. Um, so what it means to be on a Bitcoin standard is that I don't hold any fiat money. I still have things like, for example, credit cards, and I can use a credit card um, in any shop which accepts it. And then I pay that credit card off using Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. essentially, you know, I don't, I can't say I only use Bitcoin, but I can say I only hold Bitcoin. Your final settlement is in is in Bitcoin once your your debts are paid on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, well, let's jump right in because I'm I'm sure this will take a a, a bit of time. Um, I mean, I'll I'll open it off with a, a bit of a leading question, but I'm curious how you answer it. If someone comes up to you and says, "Ben, what it what is Bitcoin? Where, where do you, where do you start? How do you how do you begin to answer that question?" So my very first straightforward answer is that bitcoin is a form of money um that of course then obviously leads into questions like well okay what is money um how do i understand the difference between one kind of money versus another kind of money and that's where we have to start getting into the details so yeah bitcoin is money um but specifically bitcoin is a form of money that isn't controlled by any kind of centralized entity so if you look at things like the US dollar, the euro, the Japanese yen, whatever, um, there's always some kind of central bank behind it. There's some kind of group of people who say, we are defining what this money is. We're defining how much of this money there is. We can create more money at will. We can put money into the system. We can theoretically take it out, although they almost never do. Um, so that's the role of a central bank. Bitcoin is a type of money which doesn't have a central bank. Um, that, of course, then gets into the questions, well, okay, how does that work? And the simplest of analogies is to look at things like other kinds of commodity-based money. So look at things like gold, for example. There is only a certain amount of gold in the world, um, and you can't just magically create more of it at will when you need to have more money. Um, you know, the gold simply exists. Um, that's the type of money that Bitcoin is, but Bitcoin has the advantage of being completely digital. Um, so actually Bitcoin is a mathematical protocol. Um, it exists entirely as a set of mathematical principles. Um, and because of that, you can do things with it that you can't do with physical money like gold. So that's, I think, the very 
very high level overview what is bitcoin yeah that that uh that makes sense and i'll try to also on my end think from my friends who <laughs> who ask those questions because you know even myself like you've been in bitcoin far longer and i think i'm having you on because i think you can explain it uh better than i can but even though i've been in bitcoin since you know early 2021 not that long now i even find myself saying words and then i'm like let me take a step back because that word needs an explanation or just like you did with the what is money so for for people to think about with this episode this isn't the end all be all of understanding bitcoin because i think people will listen to this episode and perhaps have more questions on many of the other topics right kind of digging into what is money and i think following this episode i'll be sure to link in some other resources i think are pretty relevant um um from this but you you also sent over one of the points maybe we can maybe start with is the utxo model yeah. and i'm happy to go in any order of the things you you sent over and have them on my end but if you wanted to dig into that a little bit you know what is a utxo why is it important in bitcoin yep absolutely so in bitcoin there are there are a lot of different acronyms and unusual terms that people are going to hear and one of those quite often that people will hear is utxo and it sounds scary when you start throwing out all of these different strange words and acronyms but really utxo is just an abbreviation it stands for unspent transaction output and it means pretty much exactly what it sounds like um, it's the uh, output of a transaction so let's say i have some bitcoin and i want to spend it i want to send it to you i want to send you all of that bitcoin that i have um, whether that's, you know, a thousand Satoshis, a million Satoshis, whatever. Um, Satoshis, by the way, are the smallest unit of Bitcoin. One one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin is a Satoshi. Um, if I wanted to send you some amount of Bitcoin, what I will do is I will take my UTXO, my unspent transaction output, um, and I will perform a mathematical operation on it called signing, um, and then assign that to... Um, a piece of information that you have given me, which allows you to prove that you now own it. Um, so what I'm actually doing is destroying the old UTXO and creating a new one. Um, that may sound very abstract, especially when I talk about you know, performing some kind of arcane mathematical operation on it, but uh, a very good analogy of it. And remember, all analogies are just that. They're never perfect, but uh, a very good way to think of it is imagine some boxes. Those boxes are everywhere in the world at once. They are stored on a globally distributed ledger um, called the blockchain or the time chain. Um, and those boxes are the UTXOs. I have a key to open the box. And when I do, it can never be closed again. So what I do um, to send you a certain amount of Bitcoin is I open the box that I have a key for. I take out all of the Bitcoin that is in there. I then create one or more new boxes um, based on other keys. So it could be my own key, it could be your key. Um, and I put that Bitcoin that I have taken out into those boxes. Now, that's an important distinction to the way that a lot of other money works. If I make a transaction with a lot of other systems, um, I may uh, just take some of the money out and give that to you and leave the rest of it in the box. But Bitcoin doesn't work that way. You always take all of the money out of the box and you'll put some of it maybe into another box that you own and some of it into the box of the person you're sending it to. So um, you can think of those boxes essentially as um, the individual UTXOs and the keys that we're using to open the box 
is the way that we define who has access to it. So when I'm going to pay you, you give me a piece of information. That information is generally in the form of a Bitcoin address. And the address is really just a way of identifying your box. You have a key, so you can generate the address from that key. Um, and now I can put money into your box without me being able to open it again afterwards. Only you can do so. So that's the very basic idea of the UTXO model. You can imagine um, some more complex cases, of course, because this is all digital, because it's all mathematical, we can do clever things like have multiple keys to open a single box. So you can get into these really interesting kind of scenarios. Yeah, as you were talking, I, I visualized like storage units too. Because um, I, I think that was one of the things early on that, that I learned. Um, I mean, once you get into like, okay, holding dollar bills and realizing, okay, what what is the, the dollar management system, right? So with, with Bitcoin, it, it's it, everything is, a, it's all on a ledger. It's all you have keys to access and to, to unlock, but it's not that you actually hold the box in your house. Like the, the boxes are always accessible, but it's the private key that creates the ownership. So when people say they own Bitcoin or they own SATs, you own the private keys to access it and only you can access it or whoever can access it that has that private key. That for me was a important distinction is separated a bit from like gold ownership or like, you know, having that thing on your hand. It's kind of the same thing at the end of the day. Um, but that's an important distinction to see that it's, that it's on this, this public, you know, decentralized ledger. Absolutely. There's actually an important distinction for multiple reasons. Um, one of them, of course, is that uh, when people talk about um, having a Bitcoin wallet, let's say I have a Bitcoin wallet on my phone and I've mm -hmm. got 100,000 sats on my phone. Um, what that really means is that I have a private key on my phone, which is capable of accessing one of those boxes on the time chain containing 100,000 sats. And I could have a different, I could have the same key on a different device somewhere else, which is also capable of accessing it. So a lot of people kind of get this idea in their head, oh, I've got the Bitcoin on my phone or on a hardware mm -hmm. wallet or on my computer. That's not true. You have the key on those things. Um, and that distinction is really important because you can have the same key elsewhere as well. So you can have multiple devices in multiple places which have the same key on them. Um, yeah. that's, that's a really important distinction because uh, otherwise you can get into... A false way of thinking, oh, I lost my phone, therefore I lost my Bitcoin. That's absolutely right. not true. Um, I lost my phone, but I had my key backed up somewhere else. So no problem, I can still access my Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, I, I think this leads into a, another topic very similar to what you're talking about, which is the wild world of, of key management. Um, you know, I, I think that's a lot of conversation is around centralized sources, you know, like, like a Coinbase or like a cash app or something like that, where, where people can, can buy Bitcoin and it's accessible, you know, here in the States. Um, but you don't have access to your own private keys. And then there's other solutions. And I think people can think so many different ways about private key ownership. And is it really complicated? There, there are many complicated methods to do it. There's more simpler methods. Where are the trade-offs? So we, can we get into a little bit of, of key management and yeah, you know, uh, maybe a bit more. We touched on it a little bit, but if you want to elaborate a bit more on, you know, private keys, um, why a lot of Bitcoiners talk about how this is so important, and and where the the trade offs are for you, and how you think about these things. 
Yep. So there's a uh, well-known expression. I, I'm pretty sure it was Andreas Antonopoulos who said it first. And anyone who doesn't know who he, who he is, please look him up. He's uh, yeah. So I'm going to share more of his videos after. He he's always my he's the goat in my mind. Like yeah. I I cannot think of like Ben. You are fantastic, but I think his explanations like seven years ago on Bitcoin he just does it in a way. So I people can yeah. definitely look for that on our, our social channels. But Absolutely. anyway, this go is ahead. great. And I I think he was the first person to say not your keys, not your coins. Um, and that's an important phrase, essentially, because um, as I just explained with the UTXO model, all of the Bitcoin is always there. It's on the time chain. It's distributed globally around the world. Um, you know, I have a Bitcoin node running on my computer, which is you know just over there, just across the other side of the room. And that node um, has everyone's Bitcoin on it. All of your Bitcoin is sitting there on my node. All of Coinbase's Bitcoin, you know, that huge amount that that company has is all sitting on my node. I can't access it because I don't have the keys. Um, what that really then leads to is the idea that key ownership is really control over your Bitcoin. And unfortunately, we live in a world where, you know, um, ownership is, is or access to something is essentially ownership of something. Um, it's just one of the unfortunate consequences of the world that if somebody else is holding something on your behalf, then really you don't necessarily have complete control over it um, and your ownership of it could be taken away. Um, we see that all the time with fiat money. Um, you know, somebody has uh, got a lot of money in the bank. Um, then they go to a protest that the uh, government doesn't like in their particular jurisdiction. And now they no longer have access to their money in their bank. Um, that's exactly the same thing in Bitcoin, if you don't control your own keys. So if you go to a website like Coinbase or Kraken or um, any of these other large exchanges and you purchase some Bitcoin, you exchange some of your fiat money for some Bitcoin, um, then that Bitcoin that is there and is theoretically yours, it may be even contractually yours, um, depending on what the conditions are with the exchange, but you don't actually have control over that. So if this company were to close down, um, if they were to be uh, compromised, somebody were to hack into their systems, then you could lose access to that Bitcoin. You could say, hey, please give me the Bitcoin that you know I theoretically own. And maybe they will, maybe they won't. Most of the time, under normal circumstances, they will. But there's a trust relationship going on there. Whereas once you have the Bitcoin under your own control, under your own keys, then nobody can take that away from you. Um, the only way really would be to actually steal the keys um, in some way, such as, you know, I've got it on a hardware device and somebody physically steals that device and um, forces their way into it. Or I've written it down on a piece of paper and put it in a safe and they, you know, crack into my safe and steal that bit of paper. That's about the only way somebody's getting access to my keys. Um, whereas uh, when it's under somebody else's control, it's a lot more, it's a lot fuzzier, it's a lot more fluid. This episode of The Progressive Bitcoiner is brought to you by Zeus. Zeus is a self-custodial Bitcoin wallet for Android and iOS. The app features a built-in Lightning node that allows you to take full control of how you make payments on-chain and on Lightning. You can easily onboard to the Lightning network and let Zeus's Lightning service provider, Olympus, do all the heavy lifting for you. Or you can get more hands-on and curate your own Lightning channels with whoever you transact with most. Zeus has best-in-class privacy and allows you to have great peace of mind when sending and receiving Lightning payments. Not only does the Zeus team not want to know how you're using your money, 
money, but they're building things in a way that they can't know. There's also a first of its kind lightning address that will allow you to receive payments 24 seven to your mobile wallet self-custodially. This is a great solution for a range of people, for those who just wanna have the technical ability to set up their own infrastructure, to nomads and dissidents that need to accept donations on the move. Other lightning wallets don't give the users this level of control. In fact, many of them operate more like bank accounts that can be revoked and ultimately lead to you losing your money. With Zeus, you're in full control of your private keys and therefore can start to take full control of your financial destiny. To learn more and to learn where to download, head to ZeusLN.com. So in terms of keys, can we talk a little bit about backups and what that looks like? Because, you know, keys accessing Bitcoin, there's a number of different ways that that you or you can elect others or multi-sig situations or all of these things. Maybe just a, a couple examples. A lot of people think of... Um, for for those once you get into bitcoin you hear a little bit about you know seed phrases and kind of what i consider like backup words right like kind of these these set of words that um if you lose your bitcoin hardware wallet or lose your phone or whatever and need to transition to a different app or a different way of accessing that bitcoin that as you said is there just needs the key to access it you can you have these words that if you enter in that un that unlocks your access to bitcoin that is the key so yeah. can you talk about some of the, what those those backup looks like? Because, you know, when people hear keys, they're like, okay, well, like, what does that what does that look like? Yep, absolutely. So here's actually something um, perhaps important to understand first that a lot of people even, you know, people have been around Bitcoin for quite a while. Something that not a lot of people realize. You don't always need the same type of key to access one of these uh, UTXOs, one of these locked boxes on the chain. Um, the... Boxes are locked according to what are known as spending conditions, and those spending conditions can be a wide variety of different things. You could even have a UTXO which says the spending condition is that the block number is higher than, I don't know, um, 83,000, which means in about, uh, what are we, 82,000, uh, uh, yeah, 820,000, I mean, that's just 30,000. Yeah, yeah, so I was like 83,000 <laughs> right now. Went back in time. Yeah, in about two and a half, yeah, sorry, yeah, in about two and a half thousand um, blocks, um, that would just be accessible to anyone because that's what the spending condition said. Um, mm -hmm. So um, the spending conditions are what's important. And most of the time, the spending condition is simply, I can prove that I have access to this particular address using a private key. Um, and what that private key really is, is a mathematical number. Um, so it's a number which you have generated and then you can derive other numbers from it using some mathematical principles. Um, it probably isn't worth it to go into all of the cryptography here as to how that works, but mm. uh, to give a really simple example um, of a one-way mathematical function, which is the type of things these are, it's very, very easy to multiply two prime numbers together. So if I said to you, you know, what's um, uh, 17 times, um, what's another prime number, uh, seven? You know, you could work that out very quickly. But if I gave you the um, uh, product of those two numbers and tell, told you, tell me the two prime factors of that, the only way you can actually figure that out is to go through and guess. So you try a bunch of different mm -hmm. prime factors until you find the right ones. Now imagine I had a, a couple of prime numbers which are 100 digits long each, and I multiply them together, and I give you the uh, product of those two numbers. Trying to find the two prime factors of that is a Herculean task, even for a computer, mm -hmm. because there is no known way to figure it out other than to simply try it. Now, Bitcoin doesn't actually use that particular type of uh, one-way function. It uses different things. Um, uh, ECDSA, the elliptic curve digital signature algorithm, is kind of a 
standard. Um, but the idea of a one-way function is that I can have a private key and generate a public key from it. So the public key is that product and I can give that to anyone. Um, and the public key helps you generate an address. So from the private key, I generate a public key. From the public key, I generate an address. And now I can say, okay, I give that address out to anyone. They have no idea what my private key is, but I can very easily use my private key to prove that I can not only generate that address, but uh, do it in such a way that I can say, I will be able to access the Bitcoin that was now sent to that address because I have the mathematical proof for that. Mm -hmm. So that's the idea of a key from a mathematical point of view. Um, what that then means is I have a number. Um, you know, at the end of the day, a number. How do I secure that number? I could secure it by writing down this very long number and maybe I'll make a mistake. And then when I want to enter it into another device, there's going to be issues. So mm. instead, we have um, a bunch of different methods. There's one very common standard though, where you uh, convert that long number into a bunch of words. Those words are um, guaranteed unique. It could be 12 words. It could be 24 words. There are actually other standards as well, but you'll almost always see 12 or 24 from pretty much any piece of software or hardware that you're going to deal with. Um, and those words can be translated by a computer back into that, that number. So that's what the backup kind of looks like. Um, and that's the, the most basic form of backing something up. Obviously, anyone who gets access to those words can now regenerate the same thing. Um, and so because of that, there are other security things. You mentioned um, the idea of multi-sig, for example. Mm -hmm. So I can have one of these locked boxes on the chain, which actually takes multiple keys. So instead of only one key, I now have to enter three keys to open it. Um, or maybe there are actually five locks on it, but I can enter any of three of those five in order to open it. And that would be called a three of five multi-signature. So there were five keys used or five locks used to lock it, but I only need any three of them in order to open it. Um, there are some issues with that. Um, using multi-sig, you do need to know the public key for all of the five private keys, not just the three that you're using to open it. So there are caveats and this is where i really say um, if you're going to do something like that you need to understand it yourself before you actually just dive in and do it because uh, there definitely are people who have lost access to their bitcoin um, by doing multi-sig the wrong way mm -hmm. um, so yeah i you know, highly recommend people actually look into it and understand it before uh using something like that um, there are other ways by the way of splitting a key up as well um, there's something called Shamir Secret Sharing, which I personally am quite a fan of. I think it's a very interesting technology. Again, it has its own limitations and you have to understand it before you uh, necessarily dive in and use it. But what Shamir does is it takes a single key and breaks it up into multiple parts that you then restore. For example, using three of five or even much larger numbers, you know, um, eight of 15 or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and that way, when you restore it again, you now have a single key. So on the time chain, it's still just one lock with one key, but you've broken it up into multiple parts. So you can store it in different locations um, and have a much more robust um, anti-theft kind of thing. Somebody breaks into my house and steals one of those parts. They don't necessarily have enough information to reconstitute the key and access my Bitcoin. Mm. Um, 
Now, what that looks like on a practical, I want to, I want to ask and just clarify because it's been a little bit since I since I looked into it. Um, so that on a very practical and looks like different sets of seed phrase backups, right? Different sets of of words. Let's imagine you have them yeah. on pieces of paper. So you know you have five pieces of paper with twelve or twenty four words on each paper. That's kind of the the password to unlock. If you have three of five of those sets of pieces of paper, then you can unlock that box. That's what you're describing, right? Exactly. So one of the advantages, though, with multisig compared to Shamir, so I just mentioned I really like this Shamir secret sharing system. Hmm. One of the advantages of a traditional multisig instead is that I don't need to bring all the pieces together to do it. So what that means is I could have multiple people who um, only need to collaborate with each other but never actually need to bring their keys together. So let's say we had a two of three multisig, you, me, and somebody else, and any two of us can collaborate to spend that Bitcoin. Mm. I could create a new transaction and sign it with my key and then give you this partially signed transaction. And this is another one of those acronyms that you'll occasionally hear in Bitcoin, a PSBT, partially signed Bitcoin transaction. I will give that to you. You will sign it with your key and then we broadcast that to the network. So what we've done is without ever bringing our keys together, we've collaborated on signing a transaction. And this is actually where some companies are offering services, which um, are quite interesting for people who have maybe a large amount of Bitcoin and aren't necessarily mm. going to trust themselves even um, to have complete control over all of it. Um, what you do is you work with a company who um, will hold um, one um uh, signing key, you hold two keys um, in a two of three kind of arrangement. Maybe one is inside a particular app and now, um, and one is a backup key that you keep completely separate. So now whenever you want to create a normal transaction, you sign it from your side, the company signs it from their side and the transaction is made. But if that company were to ever go out of business, you can still access your own Bitcoin by going to that backup key. And now you've got the key that you have plus the backup key working together in order to sign the transaction. So there are these kinds of arrangements that can be done with multi-sig, which are really, you know, quite interesting approaches. Um, mm. Something I probably should have mentioned earlier, uh, I kind of glossed over it a bit, is that the private key itself, that long mathematical number, isn't actually a direct representation of those backup words that you've written down. The backup words that you write down um, from almost every standard system, um, the standard way of doing this, is that they are actually um, a seed number which can generate any potentially large number of private keys. So um, you start off with a seed and then you generate private key from the seed and then you generate public key from the private key and then you generate address from the public key. So it's kind of this long chain. But the reason that that's important is that private keys alone are actually not enough to re-access your Bitcoin. You need, um, well, I should say the seed word alone is not enough because seed words um, could generate any potentially you know, huge number, um, millions, trillions, close to infinite amount of keys, uh, private keys. What you actually need um, in addition to the seed is some kind of derivation path. So they're hierarchically deterministic wallets. Um, occasionally you'll see the phrase written as HD wallets um, or mm. you'll hear the term hierarchical determinism. Um, you don't really need to understand how it works if you're sort of new to Bitcoin, if this is, you know, you're just looking at the basics, but you do need to know that that information is needed, this derivation path in addition to the seed. 
Um, for that reason, a lot of newer wallets are actually using what are called descriptors, which is basically, realistically, in the simplest case, it's just the seed data plus the um, uh, plus the derivation path in one simple package so that this descriptor really is all you need to access your Bitcoin. Of course, descriptors mm. can then be more complex, such as you know, multi-sig or other special spending conditions like I mentioned earlier. So so let's say, and again, if people are hearing this and you're you're confused, I'd say the, the best thing to kind of understand is that it's going to take time and, and research to look into these things. You don't have to understand all of these things to use Bitcoin, to be a Bitcoiner, to, to advocate for Bitcoin, to hold you know your private keys, things like that. But the one thing that's clear through this is that Bitcoin is a, an incredibly secure network. I, I think that's the point through all of this. Like I'm still, you will always continue to learn new things about Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is like your sweatshirt that you're wearing. Cypherpunk future is now like Bitcoin was created by cypherpunks on a rich history of e-cash, e cryptography, all of these other things. There's going to continuously be new methods of using and working with Bitcoin. It'll be a never ending development. Granted, it's a more conservative development approach than other crypto projects that, in my opinion, quite honestly, will just say things uh, to make it sound like something very cool or secure is going on in the background when really it's maybe just a central server or and all these projects aren't the same. But, you know, the biggest thing, if you're confused by what Ben's saying, you know, understanding that that all of this, the things we're stressing here is security, security, security. Um, that, that is one of the strongest things about about Bitcoin in terms of the best monetary chain, ledger, all of that. But I wanted to back up for a second and just ask about, so let's say someone hears this and they're like, oh, I have my my seed phrase. So wait, if I lose my wallet or something, you're saying that that alone, I won't be able to access it with, you know, Bitbox, one of our, our sponsors, let's say Bitbox or, you know, any other hardware wallet, they've got a Trezor, they've got a ledger, you know, whatever. Um, and if they wanted to to access their their Bitcoin, let's say that that company goes out of business, whatever the, the company I just mentioned goes out of business, but they have the seed phrase, what's a way that they can access their private keys? Because I can imagine someone hearing that and being like, oh, I have my seed phrase. What else do I need right now in this moment? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's one of the good things with these derivation parts is they are actually relatively standardized. So um, it's not entirely... Um, uh, it's not entirely the case that if you only have your seed phrase, you will never access your Bitcoin again, because there's a very good chance that you're going to be able to guess what the derivation path was. Um, when you set up your brand new Bitbox, when you set up your brand new uh, device from whichever manufacturer or new mm. software wallet on your phone or whatever, um, there will be a default derivation path. And chances are you selected that either without even realizing or without even seeing it. Maybe it was hidden behind some kind of advanced option and you just click straight past it. No problem. Um, that default derivation path tends to be very well known. So it's very easy to go online and just, uh, you, know, you could Google literally, um, what is the default derivation path for Bitcoin on a BitBox? And you would get the answer. Um, mm -hmm. So then importing it into a new wallet would be no problem. Um, or just you know, go out, buy another Bitbox and uh, enter the seed phrase, keep it on the default, and you should have access to your Bitcoin because they shouldn't be just uh, changing the derivation path from one version to the next. So yeah. um, even though you know, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of saying you should be using the uh, newer descriptor model because it contains all that information, uh, you don't need to be too scared that if all you've got is your seed words that you're definitely going to lose all your Bitcoin. That's not the case. 
Yeah, and all of these typically, I don't, I don't know for a, for a fact, but a lot of these companies will even describe even even multi sig um, different companies that are that are doing those type of services and, and stuff. And people can look into the the trade offs and models. Typically, they'll describe or kind of you mentioned kind of packets. Some of them will literally have a downloadable, um, you know, in addition to your your seed phrase that twelve password. We'll also say this is your derivation path. This, you know, they'll they'll actually describe like if we go out of business tomorrow, this is the full information you'll need. I, I personally would say a good company um, yeah. puts that out there to make it as clear as possible, saying if we're not here tomorrow, this is how you'll still be able to fully one hundred percent access your Bitcoin. But even without that, you're you're there's so many different ways that um, different wallet makers, different um, you know key services, things like this will assist with that. Um, and I think the ecosystem is pretty good about putting that out there in addition to trying to make profits and, you know, the business model, that kind of thing. Yeah. I think it actually reflects back to something you were just saying before. You know, you don't need to understand all of this technical stuff I'm talking about in order to use Bitcoin. Um, and it's kind of about security, but it's actually also about the way that Bitcoin works without having any kind of central management. So there mm. is no Bitcoin, the company, there is no group of people who decide this is how Bitcoin works. Um, we are running the Bitcoin network. If something goes wrong, you pick up the phone and you call a Bitcoin representative. That's not the way any of this works. Um, and in order for it to work as a completely decentralized system where everybody has equal rights on the network, it needs to have these, um, needs to have these cryptographic principles in order to build a system like that. So while it's uh, you know relatively complex under the hood, all you really need to understand is um, this idea that I have access to my Bitcoin through my private keys. It could be just me or it could be me collaborating with some other private keys. Um, the absolute basics of what I mentioned about that UTXO model. So uh, I take everything out of one box and I split it into one or more. That's important uh, when we start talking about things like transaction fees, which we haven't yet, but uh, maybe mm. later on this call, or maybe you can talk about that with another guest. Um, and uh, it's a relatively simple thing to use. It's a relatively complex thing when you want to look at all of the different possible use cases, all of the different possible ways that you could store and access uh, your money. And Quite simply, the reason for that is there is no central entity. There's nobody who said these are the way or this is the absolute way that you write down this number of words in order to create your keys, quite simply, or create your seed phrase. That's quite simply one way that somebody said this would be a good way to do it. And a bunch of other people said, yeah, we agree. Let's do it that way. But occasionally somebody else comes along and says, I've got a different way of doing it. I've got my preferred way. Um, mm -hmm. It's a very, very powerful wallet, um, both on the computer and on mobile devices called Electrum. Electrum can use the standard seed phrases that are generated by pretty much every other wallet, but it generates a completely different form, which the people who created Electrum think is better in quite a few ways. Um, maybe they're right, maybe they're not right, but that's, uh, you know, everyone has free to their own opinion and their own way of doing things. So Electrum generates a completely different type of seed phrase um, than the seed phrase that we're using, uh, for example, from the Bitbox. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things about Bitcoin, too, is it's it's completely opt-in and it's giving you complete control. It's your choice how you engage with the network, how you use Bitcoin. Um, 
I mean, this is a separate conversation, but uh, what you put onto the Bitcoin network and, and how you interact with Bitcoin, people might define Bitcoin differently um, in terms of what it is because it's software, it's open source software, um, pretty simple at the base layer. So people can use it in, in different and interesting ways. But what I love is, you know, I, I think in terms of there's a bit of a hierarchy as well in terms of self-sovereignty with Bitcoin. Um, now down to the wire of like holding, generating your own, uh, you know, keys, do, doing all of these different super complex things for users that are interested in that. To the very top layer, I would argue, is perhaps something like a Bitcoin ETF. Now, again, there's there's a big difference between private keys and Bitcoin ETF that I don't think would uh, take too long for someone to understand. But you know, a Bitcoin ETF is just following price action, right? So you might say, okay, I see that Bitcoin is going up in price. Um, I have this retirement account and I'd like to benefit from that price action. But you're holding an ETF, which is based on dollars tracking the Bitcoin price. So that's very, very, that's the most loosely attached to Bitcoin that you could get on this, on this spectrum. And then below that is probably buying something, you know, buying Bitcoin on Coinbase and having it held on Coinbase with their private keys. And then you go on down. So people can interact, like my personal opinion is people can interact with Bitcoin on the level that they prefer. And I have a strong belief that, because when I first got into Bitcoin, I bought on Coinbase. Um, and then I quickly though, kind of, I've said it on this pod before, not got in my head, but I was like, ooh, I want to try to hold this the most secure way possible. Because I, I started to understand the properties of like, oh, I can actually hold this. It isn't an IOU on something. It's something you can actually hold um, and no one has to own it but me in terms of access. And I get excited about that. And I am not technical at all. I learned some technical things because I wanted to hold it in my view properly so that I felt secure in that. That's what's really cool about Bitcoin. And I think too many Bitcoiners get concerned that people will just stop right at that first step. I tend to give people a little more credit and say, actually, if they start to understand Bitcoin, they'll want to hold it more securely and want to hold it in a way that is more trusted, especially people in the global south, right? That have actually seen crumbling infrastructure that do not trust their banks, all of this. Us in the US and the West, you know, we've got it pretty good, but we've also seen some bank runs and seen some other stuff happen that have caused people to think, how can I hold this securely, right? Things like that. So, so Bitcoin being opt-in, there are so many different cool ways and only increasing more and more ways to interact with Bitcoin, to hold Bitcoin, all of this. It's it's really user's choice. And that that's very, very cool, no matter where you're at. So if you're not super technical or super comfortable, like don't jump right into a multi-sig complicated situation and then lose access to your Bitcoin. Like start off simple. That is totally okay in my book. Exactly. Um, I would also add to that, um, if you start going down the rabbit hole of what's the most secure way I could hold this, I actually, I, I did that as a thought experiment a little while ago and I was thinking oh, about- gosh. That sounds like something LOP would do as well. I was thinking about, uh, you know, what does it actually mean for um, a wallet to be more secure or less secure? Or in Bitcoin terms, we mm. often talk about hot wallet and cold wallet as if it's some kind of binary dichotomy where a hot wallet is one where your keys are online and therefore theoretically accessible. And a cold wallet is one where your keys are detached from the network in some way. Mm -hmm. And what I was actually thinking about was the network itself is irrelevant because Bitcoin is a mathematical protocol. It's implemented on the internet. But Bitcoin mm -hmm. itself is not an internet protocol. Bitcoin is a mathematical protocol being implemented on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and what that really means is that the distinction between hot and cold is actually kind of fuzzier. What you've really got is how easy is it 
to access the Bitcoin from outside of the intended process. And mm. yeah, this is kind of this weird fuzzy sounding thing, but um, the intended, pro you know, if I were to uh, you know, take my seed words and write them on a huge piece of paper and uh, nail that to a tree in a public park, you know, technically it's still a cold wallet because my wallet was never um, connected to the internet. But mm -hmm. realistically, it's incredibly easy for anyone to come along, write down those seed words and gain access to my Bitcoin. So um, obviously how hot or cold a wallet is actually depends on ease of access. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, doing this kind of thought experiment, I was like, well, okay, maybe the absolute coldest wallet you could get, the one which is hardest to access would be that uh, you know, I beam my Bitcoin as pulses of light into a black hole. And now you wait for Hawking radiation to slowly evaporate that black hole over, you know, 10 to the 100 years or something. And mm. finally, you know, you'll be able to hopefully reconstruct a private key out of that. So, you know, it, it's a ridiculous scenario, but really that's just kind of going to show when you're thinking about hot versus cold, you actually don't really have a most secure. You just have different kinds of secure in different ways with different trade-offs. So, um, you know, thinking about, for example, those multi-sig scenarios where there's a third-party company holding one key and the application holding one key and you having a backup, so you use the application, um, the, they will co-sign it. If that application is written by that same company, could they not just issue an update to the application which steals the application key? Now they have two of the three keys to access your Bitcoin and could steal it. So there is actually... You know, these mm -hmm. kinds of things that you think about and you go, oh, actually, security is hard. Security is complex and you're never going to find the perfect security. All, you'd, all you're going to find is what are the trade-offs of this form of security versus this other form of security. Um, you know, the perfect yeah. security is Bitcoin that you can't access and that's not useful. You need to be able to access your own Bitcoin at some point. Yeah, and there's always... Um... And again, especially if you look on social media or anything like that, it's always it's always extremes, right? And so you'll have say, people saying this is the best and most secure way, <clears throat> or this is the best, or no, if you do that, that's the worst, right? It, I, I think emphasizing, and I've seen more and more people do this, which is good, like the trade-offs, and it depends on your individual situation and circumstances, like how safe is your home environment? Are, are you more transient? Are you on the move? Like what is your level of comfort with technology or with, for, for some, I would say if you were, I'd, I'd prefer, me personally, I'd prefer someone to to deal with some multi-sig company like you're describing rather than do something they're not super comfortable with and lose access, right? Because the whole point is what is that trade-off with having access but being comfortably secure rather than full security but more likely to use lose access, which means it's actually not full security. Like you and I, I think, are very comfortable talking in the philosophical sense versus the truly technical sense of okay technically this element might be most secure but in actuality it's not because okay in 25 percent of cases they will lose this this key so i think people need to everything about bitcoin too is like it, you know a lot of individual choice you need to think for yourself about what is best for your situation and i would also say you know if your if your Bitcoin is on Coinbase or you're holding it somewhere, I would not say you need to like jump off this call right now and do anything drastic. Like, you know, I some Bitcoiners might disagree, but still, like, even if Bitcoin is lost in the situations, depending on your your nation, I will say that. But in the U.S., we we do have laws, we we do have theft laws, we do have courts, 
Um, it might take time for you to recover your Bitcoin in certain situations. You have to deal with companies and insurance and all of these different things. You may not ever get that Bitcoin back. That is a risk, but I wouldn't be too alarmist about it. But for people to start thinking, okay, what are some ways I can diversify my setup? Maybe I have some Bitcoin there. Maybe I have some Bitcoin in this forced retirement account I have to have. So, okay, it's, um, you know, a you know, connection to Bitcoin price action through the ETF. But you know what? I'm going to start experimenting with this more private secure element with some low amounts of Bitcoin, some really small ones. I'll send it back and forth. I'll play around with that, see how comfortable I am. I'll wipe the wallet, try to recover it with a seed phrase. That's the way to do it, is to play around with really small amounts. Um, you might get burned a little bit. I, for me, that's how I learned. I got burned a little bit on very, very small amounts. I'm like, ooh, okay, I know what I did there. Um, if you really care about it, play around with it and, and get to know it. But you don't need to rush into anything extreme in the moment, right? Like our, in my opinion, our country is not defaulting tomorrow um, in the United States. In some places, um, there might be more dire consequences. So I think yeah. that you have to evaluate all of that, long story short. Exactly. Everyone's situation is unique, even within one particular country or economy. You know, mm -hmm. some yeah. some people in the United States, for example, it's going to be very easy to uh, you know take a small amount of Bitcoin and transfer it between a few different wallets and uh, you know that sort of thing. For other people, though, um, that may be actually a difficult thing from a transaction fee perspective. It may be a difficult mm -hmm. thing from uh, you know the cost of purchasing a hardware wallet to try it out if they are going to try that kind of thing. Um, if they want to do multi-sig and they heard somebody say, well, you know, it's good to have different hardware manufacturers so you're not tied to one particular hardware attack. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that or there can be financially prohibitive things going on there as well. So you know, it is everyone's situation is unique and everyone should try to evaluate, you know, for themselves what's best. Um, you know, just to plug my own services very slightly here, you know, um, as mm -hmm. an independent consultant, this is something I help people do. Um, so, you know, uh, anyone who's really you know, interested in that sort of thing, I encourage them to reach out to a consultant, whether it be me or somebody else, um, you know, if that's something which is, again, something you can afford, because of course, uh, you know, um, also not only a hardware wallet's not free, consultants aren't free either, uh, but there are there is plenty of free information out there online. Um, and I'm sure this series you're doing on uh, the Progressive Bitcoiner here, you know, is going to help a lot of people at no cost. So, you know, I think that's a, a wonderful service as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There, there's multiple different entry points, no matter those those price things like that. Um, gosh, I've got so many other questions that we could talk about. I think a couple of more points I definitely want to make sure to focus on in, on in, in this episode. One being maybe I answer it philosophically, and I want to then we can shift into fees, Lightning Network, that sort yep. of thing. Yeah. But for, from your perspective, because um, a lot of people ask when they first see Bitcoin. Okay, you know, it's magic internet money. Okay, maybe now at this point, you know, some they'd understand, okay, you know, keys like this this ledger, accessing boxes. Okay, I can see the mathematical mechanisms. Um, but from your perspective, why does Vic why is Bitcoin valuable? Like where does Bitcoin derive its value from? Some people might say in an old frame of thinking, what is it backed by? all of this. So when someone asks that question, like, well, it's, 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 it's worthless, you know, say someone on the opposite. And if they're listening to this show, they probably don't think it's worthless, probably a little bit curious. Yep. Um, someone said, you know, so where does Bitcoin derive its value from? Can we go into to that a little bit? Value. So this is, yeah, this is getting into some sort of deeper philosophical uh, questions here, but you have to then ask, what is value? Value is what I personally choose to consider 
something I want to have. So value is a subjective thing in the mind of an individual. Um, you know, if I'm crawling through a desert and I haven't had anything to drink in a long time, I will value a bottle of water very, very highly. Whereas if I'm, uh, you know, just hanging out in my house, sure, I value a bottle of water. It's a nice thing to have, but it's, uh, you know, it's nowhere near as critical to me at that point. So its value isn't as high. When we talk about the value of things, what we're normally talking about is intersubjective value. So rather than it just being my subjective value, it's my subjective value and your subjective value together mm -hmm. so that we can have some idea of being able to trade things between us. So, you know, maybe, you know, the classic old example of trade, you know, I have two goats, you have one cow. We both agree that you would like to have two goats and I would like to have one cow. So we value those um, you know, either roughly the same, or maybe I value a cow slightly higher than two goats, and you value two goats slightly higher than one cow. So we both feel like we had a good trade when we swap those things. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what value is. Now that gets back to that very original question, what is money? Money is a way to represent value um, without having uh, a specific um, object, without having a, a specific um, objective property that is valued outside of the value itself so mm. i value water because i can drink it i value a cow because it can give me milk i can eat its beef you know whatever the different reasons you value a cow are i don't value money for anything other than the fact that other people also value it mm. um you know money to me whether it's euro dollars bitcoin all of them are valueless if nobody else wants them from me sure. um so Money is the representation of value without having its own inherent value. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm always careful with the term that inherent value as well. I actually consider the term quite meaningless. What I really mean when I say inherent value is inherent properties that give it value. So yeah. um, give a value to individuals. So um, Bitcoin is money. Therefore, the reason it has value is because it's money and other people also want to have it. Then you get to the question, okay, why? Why do other people want to have it? Why does anyone want mm -hmm. to have Bitcoin compared to other kinds of money? Um, so then you get into something called the properties of money. Um, money is good at being money when it has certain properties. It's bad at being money when it doesn't have these properties. So mm -hmm. to give a really simple example, um, divisibility. Let's say I have um, you know, a small one gram piece of gold. Um, Right now, I think that's worth a little bit over 50 US dollars. I'm not actually really sure. I never look at the gold price that much, but let's call it mm. 50 US dollars. If I wanted to go and buy a candy bar with this one gram piece of gold, that would be difficult because it's quite hard to take this one gram piece of gold and shave off just enough of it to have the exact right amount of weight in order to buy a candy bar. So the divisibility of gold is relatively poor when you get to small values. Um, <clears throat> that could be, you know, you can even imagine other scenarios where, um, you know, you've got, <clears throat> um, houses, we're going to use houses as money from now on. Well, if I'm going to buy a candy bar, how do I do that? You know, do I, mm -hmm. do I buy a hundred million candy bars for this house and then, uh, you know, swap, then start giving out candy bars to other people. Yep. So divisibility is important. Other properties that make money important are things like, um, um, verifiability. So you can verify that it is what it says it is. Um, mm -hmm. uh, with a dollar bill, for example, 
You know, how easy is it to fake a dollar bill? Well, it's got all these nice little security mechanisms in it, so it's relatively difficult, but you still can. How easy is it to fake a gold bar? Well, relatively easy um, to fake something that looks like a gold bar, but then you can maybe, you know, do different tests on it, like the weight of it. You can melt it down to see if there was any other material hidden inside it um, of a similar density. All these kinds of things um, let you verify that gold is actually gold. So mm -hmm. different um, properties exist on money. Bitcoin, in most of the properties that you can think of, as far as money is concerned, is quite simply a better form of money. It is more divisible than most other forms of money. It's incredibly verifiable because of this entire um, UTXO model with the time chain being distributed all over the world. Um, and we haven't talked about the mining process at all, but that also helps ensure the verifiability of the Bitcoin. Um, mm -hmm. There is um, the idea of scarcity. So something else we haven't mentioned yet is that Bitcoin is limited in the amount of Bitcoin that can exist. So if I have, um, you know, we'll go back to that water example. Uh, you know, if, if there's a lot of water available, water isn't that valuable. If there's only a very small amount available, then all of a sudden water becomes incredibly valuable to me. Um, the scarcity of something, and it doesn't even matter exactly what those values are, simply is it a scarce resource or not? Um, mm -hmm. Is it limited in supply? Um, makes it more valuable than something which is unlimited in supply. US dollars are a really good example of that. Recently, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve has been printing a huge amount of dollars over the last uh, you know, year or two. There's been more money. I don't remember these figures, but you know, over the last six months, there was something like more money printed than there was ever printed before that, or some insane mm -hmm. figure like that, some insane yeah. concept like that. Um, and that shows that dollars themselves are not scarce, um, and therefore the value of dollars can go down. There's more dollars into the into the uh, economy, the value of each individual dollar goes down, unless you are you know, increasing the total total value of the economy to match, which clearly isn't mm -hmm. happening. So a fixed supply really helps with that. Um, and yeah, there's a bunch of other properties. I don't think it's you know, useful to necessarily go through all of them. There's some great articles online about that sort of thing. But talking about the the, the properties of money, Bitcoin quite simply has um, better grades, better marks in uh, every property you can think of, with perhaps the, pro um, the perhaps the exception of um, acceptance, um, in that Bitcoin is not as well accepted around the world as several other currencies. So you know. Bitcoin is actually more accepted than some very small currencies. Um, Bitcoin mm -hmm. is far more accepted, for example, than the Tongan Paanga, the currency of the Kingdom of Tonga in the South Pacific. You will find more people in the world willing to accept Bitcoin from you than Tongan Paanga. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, Bitcoin isn't the worst in terms of acceptability, but, you know, you'll definitely find more people willing to take US dollars from you than you will Bitcoin right now. Yeah. And and I think that's uh, that's a place that a lot of Bitcoiners would agree on, or really advocates of Bitcoin, and, and those that start to understand, like uh, many would argue that Bitcoin is the best form of money for those things. So yeah, there's articles that delve more into that, but there is, I think that's a great way to put it. There's that subjective value of if no one wanted <laughs> to use Bitcoin, okay, like Bitcoin isn't a guaranteed success story. Like people have to want to be interested in, in holding it, spending it, using it. Uh, all, all of that sort of thing. So there has to be interest in it. But then there's these more objective, I know uh, for someone like you especially would cringe at these these words, which I love. Um, just that, that value that what are the properties that make people interested in it? I think that was a really good 
um, summary of that. But you you touched on, I do want to touch on a little bit because there's, we could go further and I'll probably do other episodes that delve more into the weeds on mining. We've talked about Bitcoin mining on here from the vantage point of climate change in the environment and how it actually could be beneficial for renewable expansion, capturing methane and how the benefit of Bitcoin in capturing, you know, stranded energy and, and monetizing that. So it's actually a way to expand these things um, and, and do a really good job of that. Um, so we've talked about kind of the, the mining element in that way. But in terms of taking a few minutes here to talk about the process of mining, what people talk about with with proof of work versus proof of stake, I think people would be very interested in, in hearing about that um, and understanding that a little bit more and then the last thing I'd want us to touch on is maybe kind of lightning and the other reasons for, for layer twos in this um, fee environment and growing fee environment. Yep, absolutely. So mining, um, the term mining was created in order to give you a um, comparison to precious metal mining. And there are definitely mm -hmm. some similarities, but there are also a lot of differences. So I've always can I say really quick that it 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 the more I think about it, the more upset I get that it that we really captured that. That's my personal opinion that yeah. um that mining took off because it's it's more of a computation data center. So for me, mining, I'm like, ah, oh, I think that created a lot of the FUD, but they would have found other reasons yeah. for FUD. So of so course probably not. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> um I agree. I think there's actually a, there's a lot of bad terminology in Bitcoin. You know, the term wallet mm. is bad, the term mining is bad, um, even the term mm. transaction is bad. And I can briefly mention why on that one, because it's kind of relevant to this uh, point here. Um, sure. One Bitcoin transaction can contain many real world transactions. Mm -hmm. um, so I mentioned you know, a transaction really was opening the box, taking all the money out and then putting it in one or more boxes. One or mm -hmm. more is very much the key there. And even I could have opened multiple boxes, taken all the money out and then put those in multiple other boxes. Um, so, a Bitcoin transaction is really just a record being written into the time chain. Um, and that record can be zero real world transactions or could be hundreds of real world transactions. Or mm -hmm. as we'll talk about soon with Lightning, could even be the opening or closing state of potentially unlimited number of uh, transactions that happened in between. Um, but okay, so... What mining is, um, I mentioned with this UTXO model that I have a key to open a box and you know, then I put the money in your box and now you have a key to open that box. Where did that process start? You know, at some point, the Bitcoin had to be in a box. Um, who decided that and how? That's mm. what mining does. So right at the very start of Bitcoin, um, every time a new block was created, um, it would contain 50 Bitcoin in a brand new box. So the person who um, creates that block or mines that block is able to put 50 Bitcoin into a new box. Um, and they have the key to that box so they can do whatever they want with it. Um, 210,000 blocks later, which is approximately four years, um, uh, that amount halved to 25 Bitcoin. Then it halved again in 210,000 blocks down to 12 and a half Bitcoin. And anyone who can picture this on a mathematical curve is going to see that this is a uh, you know, approaching a limit um, uh, kind of function. And uh, we're getting, in the very first four years of Bitcoin, half of the Bitcoin that will ever exist had been mined. In the next four years, it was 75%. In the next four years, it was, uh, what, 87.5%. Um, so 
the amount of Bitcoin that gets put into a new box every block is halved and that approaches that fixed limit of 21 million that we mentioned. So this is where that number comes from. It's actually a tiny bit under 21 million Bitcoin. Uh, another way to put that is 2.1 quadr quadrillion Satoshis because some um, sats are actually the fundamental unit of Bitcoin. The, the Bitcoin unit is just a abstraction, doesn't really exist. Um, so you could actually say the first blocks had 5 billion uh, sats, then the next um, time it was uh, 2.5 billion and so on. Um, so that's the mining process for starting the UTXOs. But um, that's that. what that explains is why the miners want to do it. So why are the miners doing this to begin with? Well, they get Bitcoin out of it. If you mine a block, you get some new Bitcoin, uh, which is great if you're a miner. Um, and what are they exactly doing and why? So what they're doing is um, producing a block to be written onto this global ledger, onto this chain um, of a whole bunch of new UTXOs. A block isn't just one UTXO, it's a whole bunch of them. Um, and it's size limited by the amount, by the data size, not by the amount of Bitcoin that's in there. So we could be transferring all of the Bitcoin in existence. We could be transferring a tiny amount of Bitcoin. It doesn't matter. One block simply contains a certain amount of data and it gets written to the chain. Um, any miner can write a new block to the chain. There is no rules about who can do it or uh, when or how. The only rule is that they have to it has to contain a certain cryptographic hash value. That hash value has to be a very specific number or below. Um, now, there's one of these mathematical cute cryptography tricks here. Um, you cannot know in advance what the hash value of any particular piece of data is going to look like. So I could take a single document that I've written and compute a hash from it, and I'm going to get a certain number. I change one character in that document, compute the hash, I will get a completely different number. I, it could be much larger, it could be much smaller. I, you have absolutely no way of knowing um, mm. before you compute the hash what it's going to be. So by requiring that this hash is much, much smaller um, than a particular value, you can see that if I am a miner and I put together a bunch of transactions and I create a new candidate block, it's called, so a new potential block. Um, and then I create the hash of it and I look at that hash and I say, is this bigger or smaller than the number I'm allowed to be? So the target value. Um, oh, it's bigger. Okay, I'm going to have to change something in the block and then compute a new hash. Generally, the thing that they change is this kind of meaningless number called the nonce, but they could actually change anything. You could take a transaction out, you could put a different transaction in, you could change the timestamp on it. It doesn't actually matter, but... It's just easier and faster to change this meaningless number. So you change this meaningless number called the nonce and you compute it again. And it's still not small enough. So you do it again and again. And you do it trillions of times until, oh look, I finally found one under the value and now I will broadcast it to the network. And every other node on the network can look at it and say, is this block valid? Are all the transactions in it valid? Um, does it contain the hash of the previous block as well? So I know that uh, you know it's linking on from the previous block. That's why it's a chain. It's a time chain mm -hmm. or a block chain. Um, and importantly, is this uh, under is the hash value of this block under the um, target um, for the difficulty? And the answer is yes. Okay, this is a valid block. I will now accept this as valid. 
and every miner will now try and build their blocks on top of this new one because this is the the latest newest block um this makes you kind of think well okay um i'm doing this trillions of times i'm it looks like we're kind of wasting energy here uh in order to you know compute these hashes but what that actually does is it ensures that you cannot rewrite a previous block without changing every block after it so if i said oh look there's a block five blocks ago which contained a transaction that i'd rather that one didn't happen you know i want to you know, just steal my money back i i, I sent uh, trey some money and you know, i i don't want to have sent him that money anymore so i'm going to claw it back by rewriting the blockchain uh, what i would have to do is not only recompute that block but i'd have to recompute every block after it because now mm. by taking that transaction out i've changed the what the hash of it would be and i need to recompute a new hash and because every block contains the hash of the previous block i now need to recompute every block after it in order to do that faster than the rest of the world is generating blocks i'm going to have to spend more energy than the rest of the world in order to compute that which mm. is unrealistic essentially um so i can't change historical blocks because the rest of the world is still spending energy um all of this is great but now you think well, okay what happens if a whole bunch of new miners come along and you know now we can find blocks much faster much quicker i've invented some new mining technology or i've put a whole bunch of new mining hardware onto the network so you know i can just compute blocks faster as soon as that happens you've got this really interesting thing called the difficulty adjustment so every 2016 blocks um the every node looks at all of the previous blocks and says how long did it take for that to happen um was it you know 10 minutes was it slower than 10 minutes or was it faster than 10 minutes if it was mm. faster than 10 minutes then the difficulty will increase that is the number your target number that you have to reach for this hash value gets smaller so it's harder to reach it if it was longer than 10 minutes it gets easier so the target number goes up a little bit by adjusting this difficulty number you can ensure that blocks always come on average every 10 minutes regardless of how much computing power is on the network Mm -hmm. that makes it more and more difficult for anyone to go back and change historical things quite simply because the amount of computing power no longer matters what matters is do you have more than everyone else combined and the answer is of course no you don't so that's what makes bitcoin's history essentially immutable without having anyone centralized dictating what it is that's the proof of work system and it's a stroke of genius especially with the difficulty adjustment um if you have proof of work without the difficulty adjustment then more power can come along and change history mm -hmm. uh with the difficulty adjustment that becomes impossible now a lot of people um started saying okay proof of work interesting system very secure but surely this is a huge waste of energy this is terrible for the environment this is uh, you know uh burning up all the fossil fuels we're going to boil the oceans um all this kind of ridiculous stuff that has been said mm -hmm. in the past but um it it seems like a valid criticism at first glance and i think probably there are better episodes to talk about why some of those criticisms are false i think you've probably already had quite a few um you know specialists yeah. on to talk about that stuff which is great but because of that a few other people proposed other methods for doing security on the network So instead of proof of work for example there's an idea called proof of stake. Proof of stake is where I as a large holder of the tokens on this network say you know I'm going to 
stake my tokens. I'm going to put them up and say, if I lie about this, you know, take my tokens away from me because I'm a horrible lying person. And now mm. I stake my tokens and I get to essentially vote or in some cases am elected to say what is the next valid block. Um, and it keeps me honest because I don't want to lose my money. But really what you actually end up with in a proof of stake environment is um, that the rich get richer. Um, simply by holding a lot of money, I now earn the rewards from new blocks. Um, and there is no historical security in proof of stake. So if I have enough stake or if I have enough power over the network, enough ability to change the network, I could theoretically go back and change a whole bunch of previous blocks and simply in those blocks make it look like I had the most stake and was therefore able to make that vote. So proof of stake mm. is inherently far, far less secure than proof of work. Um, and the main reason is that it's tied to something internal to itself rather than something external. So if you notice, what Bitcoin is really tied to is the energy that was put into it. Um, mm -hmm. And it's mathematically, power. Secured, right. mathematically secured through that difficulty number. So mm -hmm. the energy is simply being proxied into that mathematical representation. But energy is a fundamental property of the universe. Stake in a network is only a fundamental property of the network itself. So mm -hmm. as long so proof of stake is inherently gameable because of that. You can you can cheat it because it's entirely within the system. The only way to cheat proof of work would be to invent an infinite energy machine. And if we can do that, we don't need money anymore. So mm -hmm. uh, problem solved. <laughs> Hi everyone, hope you're enjoying the episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bitbox. Now, Bitbox is a hardware wallet that's open source, incredibly secure and easy to use, and it's what I'm using to safely secure my Bitcoin in cold storage. Now, I know self-custodying Bitcoin can really be intimidating, but Bitbox is designed for ease of use without compromising on security. It's USB-C compatible and allows you to easily back up and restore your private keys with a micro SD card, which is really cool. Now you can purchase the Bitbox using the promo code TPB at the link found in the show notes for 5% off your purchase. And I really want to thank Bitbox for their support of the podcast. And I'm really excited about this new partnership. All right, I'll let you get back to the episode now. Yeah, I think we'll do other episodes in the future too. I mean, we've done it here and there of debunking some FUD on energy, but I also think it would be cool to do an episode at some point that's really getting into, because the one thing I want to make clear too is that no system is perfect. There, there are systems with trade-offs. There, there are good arguments to discuss with Bitcoin mining, how to do it more effectively, how to, you know, all of these things. There are criticisms and ways to improve any system, but we're trying to get into the fact-finding first to just talk about what it is. And, and I think that's a great comparison that you just did between proof of stake. And again, I'm not one of those people that I, I just think because of proof of work and Bitcoin, that makes it the best, most secure form of money. And I don't think you can have the best, most secure form of money on a proof of stake system because of what you just described. If they want to do other things, their choice. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's not my thing. So I don't view it as a as a competition or even comparison, the way that some do um, between yeah. these two systems. But I think that's a good comparison. As one is um, a bit more man made and incentivized, in my opinion, the proof of stake. The other is backed by physics and energy and once you really understand that the u.s government if they wanted to come in and manipulate or change anything in bitcoin just like you said they would have to put forth at this point more energy than it is even physically possible time-wise and money-wise 
into yeah. the system. They'd have to coordinate at a global scale. It's just very difficult to see any of that actually happening, which makes it incredibly secure. Now, it's not physically impossible, hypothetically, <laughs> like you mentioned at some point. But again, there's always improvements and thoughts of how to make Bitcoin more secure and things like this. But um, very hard to imagine under proof of work. That's why it's such a strong and, and sound money. So I, I think exactly. that was a great um, breakdown. Yep. Now, now last year, because we could go for weeks um, onto this and all, all of these topics, but I want to get into, because some folks might notice it's been a little calm. I think by the time this episode comes out too, it's been a little calm in what's known as the, the mempool when you're able to see fees and like fees to actually transact on the network. So Bitcoin miners, they get rewards, but they also collect fees in terms of processing. I know we could dig into this phrase too, even the, you know, saying processing transactions, but in terms of, you know, the transaction fees to send Bitcoin. And sometimes someone will notice that, let's say you want to send, I wanted to send $100 worth of Bitcoin to Ben. One day when fees are lower on the Bitcoin main chain, that might cost 50 cents, 20 cents US dollar. Other days you'll notice, oh my gosh, that was $15 of fees that that w was to be made in that moment. That's, that's really expensive. And we can get into how expensive that is compared to actual traditional wires. You know, it's still relatively cheap compared to that. But some people might be a bit confused by by fees. And then a response to fees, one of many, is something like the, the Lightning Network. So maybe we can spend the last 10 minutes talking about that. Yep, sure. So I think probably the first place to actually start is why fees exist, because otherwise it's hard mm -hmm. to really talk about why the response to the fees exists. So yeah. um, I mentioned earlier that a block doesn't just contain a single transaction, a single UTXO as its output. It contains multiple. So there are lots of different transactions, which each contain multiple inputs, multiple outputs, and those get written into the block. And the block has a certain size limit in terms of the amount of bytes that can go into it. Um, because of that, not everyone who sends a transaction is necessarily going to get it into the next block. And blocks happen, like I said, around every 10 minutes on average uh, because of this difficulty adjustment. So when you think about that, you realize there's going to be competition for getting your transactions into the blocks. When I make a transaction, what I actually do is I take the money out of the one box and I put some into one or more boxes, but some of it I don't put into any box at all. Some of the Bitcoin that I took out of my box, I just leave there. It doesn't have an output. The, anything that I leave there is allowed to be taken by a miner and it's referred to as the transaction fee. So obviously what miners will do in order to in, increase their profits as much as possible because they are profit-driven businesses um, is they will take the transactions which have the highest transaction fees first. So if I am a miner and there's, let's say... 10,000 transactions, and I can only fit 2,000 of them into this next block which I'm building. I will take the 2,000 transactions which have the highest fees, and I will put them into this block. And then the next block, I will take the next 2,000, assuming no new ones have come in, which of course they will have by then, but you know, I'm going to take the next uh, lot and put them in with the next amount of highest fees. So as a user, if I send a transaction with a very low fee, so I send it with, for example, one Satoshi per byte is the usual way you calculate fees is how many Satoshis per byte. Um, I send a uh, transaction with a fee of one Satoshi per byte. It's a 200 uh, byte transaction. So there's going to be 200 Satoshi in fees. Um, the miner is going to far prefer to take the one paying five Satoshis per byte over mine. 
Mine is only going to make it in once all of the other higher paying transactions have been uh, processed, have been taken by uh, the miners and put into new blocks. So the amount of time that it takes for a Bitcoin transaction to actually appear in a block um, is variable based on the amount of fees that you pay. This leads to this kind of fee market, this fee competition where people are paying a lot of money to get um, important transactions processed as quickly as possible. Can um, I give a really loose um, sure. metaphor here? So yeah. in traditional finance, for people that have apps and things like that, whether it's Venmo, something like that, a lot of companies have been instituting like instant pay to your, let's say you have a balance on here in the US on your Venmo, or I think Cash App does it as well. You know, you can, you can do a traditional withdrawal from that. Let's say you have a balance of $100 and a traditional withdrawal is free for you, but it, it takes three to five days to land in your bank account. You can do an instant withdrawal for like $5 or $3.99 and it will instantly appear when really it's a trust model between the two. It, it isn't instant in fact, but you know, it, it shows up in your bank account within 20 minutes, that, that number added value. So that's a very loose comparison for people that don't know at all about kind of this, you know, transaction model and, and these settlements is, you know, you're, you're, you're paying more upfront on Bitcoin to have that faster transaction, which someone might do if they want to settle something immediately. It's very important. It's very timely. You're able to do that by paying the highest fee like you described. So I just wanted to give that really loose metaphor for folks. Yeah, no, it's a good metaphor. I think, um, like I said earlier, all metaphors have their limits though and uh, can you know break down. The important distinction here is that uh, with that, it's a company who is saying, hey, you pay us more and we will institute this kind of trust model and make it go through straight away. Whereas with Bitcoin, it really is the case that there is no centralized entity, even the miner themselves. They're not a centralized entity. Anyone can run a mining operation and anyone mm -hmm. can choose what transactions they're putting in. Most likely, if I run a small miner at home, I'm not going to be mining a lot of blocks on my own. I'm not going to uh, find the next block so often. But uh, you know, it is technically possible and I'm choosing what transactions go in there. Um, right. So with mining, you know, you really are just um, in a direct fee competition, a fee market against others, mm -hmm. uh, rather than it being just predetermined by a centralized company. So yeah, that brings us to Lightning. Lightning exists as a response to that kind of thing, um, that you don't want to always necessarily be paying huge fees, especially on relatively small transactions. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a bakery not too far from where I live who accepts Bitcoin um, over the Lightning Network. And if I walk into that bakery and the Lightning Network didn't exist, I want to buy a couple of bread rolls, comes out to about 60 cents, um, uh, 60 cents euro. And, uh, you know, that's going to be, you know, a few thousand sats, really not so much. I don't want to be paying 50% of that in fees. That That's just pointless. That's ridiculous. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to use Bitcoin in that case. Um, so the Lightning Network exists as a response to that. And the way Lightning works um, is essentially that... Um, you create a multi-signature um, arrangement between two people, and that gets called a channel. It's a two of two multi-sig. So in other words, to write that back to the chain, to write it um, to the chain, both of us need to agree that this transaction should be written to the chain. Both of us sign it, both of us agree, and then we create a normal transaction and send it um, to be written to the chain. But because we now have this transaction, that we haven't signed yet, what we can do is simply update this transaction and pass it between us 
as many times as we like with different updated values. So let's say I run a lightning node, Trey runs a lightning node. Um, we create a channel between us. Um, I open the channel. So I say, okay, I'm going to put 10 million sats in on my side. Trey puts in zero on his side. No problem. Um, anytime I want to send Trey some money, what I actually do is we just agree to update this transaction that's between us um, that now says, okay, when we submit this transaction to the network, known as closing the channel, um, Trey is going to get uh, 1 million uh, sats and I'm going to get 9 million. And then later, Trey is going to get 2 million sats and I'm going to get 8 million because I just sent him another million sats. So we keep on updating this transaction between us without ever broadcasting it to the network. Then eventually, at some point in the unknown future, we can broadcast this to the network and we both get our fair side of the channel. So we close it out and we get our side to us. That's a very simple payment channel between two people. Where the Lightning Network gets really interesting is I've got a network, I've got a channel to Trey, but Trey has a channel to somebody else as well. So we'll call this person Alice. So Ben, Trey, and Alice. Um, I want to pay Alice some money. I don't need to open a channel to her. What I can do is say, Trey, prove to me that you are going to give this money. So cryptographically, give me a mathematical proof that you are going to give that amount of money to Alice. And then I will give you this amount of money. Um, it will usually be roughly the same amount, but maybe Trey will take like one or two sats um, for himself to act as a routing uh, between me and Alice. Now, instead of paying a few hundred, potentially a few thousand sats for a transaction, I'm paying one or two sats to make a transaction. All we did was update the channel state between myself and Trey, and Trey and Alice updated the channel state between them. That is the Lightning Network. You can route over as many hops as you like, and it forms this kind of web of channels between different people, all of which can be updated dynamically, and you don't have to write those channels back to the chain. So um, it's this very trustless model, um, but looks like um, in some ways uh, kind of a, an overlay network on top of the Bitcoin network. It still is secured by the Bitcoin network though, of course, because at any time I can close the channel. I can say, this channel I have with Trey, I don't trust him anymore for whatever reason. I think he's, he's spying on me or, you know, um, he never routes payments properly. Um, you know, there's something wrong with his node. I'm going to close the channel. I can choose to do that. And either we do it cooperatively. So I say, hey, Trey, let's close the channel. And we both sign it and submit the transaction. Or I can unilaterally close it, in which case I can just broadcast this uh, transaction as it is. And then I need to wait a little bit. There's a lock time on it. Um, just in case I'm trying to cheat and broadcast an old state or something like that. I won't go into the security of Lightning so much, but um, there's a bunch of ways to make sure that people aren't cheating and sending old states back to the network. Um, so everyone gets their fair share and there are lock times and so on to make sure that's uh, um, safer in a non-cooperative close event. Yeah, and and again, for, for the what I love is for those that are super interested in the technical stuff, everything you're saying they can follow and look more into. For those that are not, what the Lightning Network looks like is you can go on any, whether it's iOS, Android, your your computer, there's so many different ways to access the Lightning Network. And what you might see is just a simple, what you might think is just like a Bitcoin wallet. And you're just sending and receiving 
transactions. And, and again, uh, what we're saying about Bitcoin, not your keys, not your coins, similar with, with Lightning Network. There's some nodes that are, you, you don't own your keys. It's kind of a centralized node and key management system. And you send and, and receive through the Lightning Network and you're not even thinking about it just to buy a cup of coffee, whatever where you're able to. There's other more complicated ways to run your own Lightning Node. Uh, some are more complicated than others, just like we were saying with, with Bitcoin on-chain. But the point of Lightning Network was to kind of bring to fruition that peer-to-peer -peer payment system that has become a bit more challenging on the main chain in terms of scaling, in terms of fees, right? Like you were saying, like to make it actually affordable to do small transactions. I view the Lightning Network personally right now. We'll see where it goes because it's continuously being built. It's still relatively new, what being seven, eight years old, something like that point. I mean, Bitcoin in general is 15 years old. So all of this is a new system. You know, I say if you're, if you're trying to send something below like 200 US dollars or something like that, right? Um, you know, usually the Lightning Network can handle that pretty decently. That's what we're saying. And then Bitcoin, the future I see is that the Bitcoin main chain will be much more of you're trying to wire massive amounts of money or you're trying to hold your, your savings in Bitcoin. That is a main chain function, whereas day-to-day -day spending, Lightning Network, and we'll have more conversations with you and others on there's other layer two and layer three functionality for peer-to-peer for -peer spending. Um, but that's the biggest thing. And the other analogy that I like, again, back to your point of no analogy is pure, is I've heard the bar tab analogy used a bit with lightning very very loosely here people so you know you, you open a tab at the bar they're like oh you want to keep it open sure well imagine if you kept that tab open for a few hours a few weeks a few months whatever kind of that is the lightning network you're opening a tab and then at some point like you described you're, you're closing it and, and settling on that base chain that's how i like to loosely think about it um but again people can the lightning network is its own web of complexities possibly more complex than, than Bitcoin and still um, in development in, in so many different ways, I'd say to folks. So I think with the bar tab analogy where um, it gets maybe a little bit stretching the analogy is that uh, not only can I keep on paying for my drinks, but now the bar can take some money off my tab that I then give it to my friend who walks into another bar and buys mm, a drink. Mm. Yeah, in order yeah, yeah. that one bar has then paid the other bar for I don't know, some kind of service which they're providing or, you know, whatever. It's um, it's a two-way approach. Um, what I actually find is a very good analogy for thinking about it is um, if you imagine everyone is holding an abacus between them and I'm simply sliding some beads backward and forward between us, um, that analogy actually works quite nicely to think about mm. the liquidity problems. And that's something we didn't yeah. talk about here. But uh, you know, when I gave that example earlier, I opened a channel to you. And there were 10 million sats on my side at the start. There were zero on your side. That actually means you won't, wouldn't be able to pay me across that channel because there is no money on your side of the channel. All the money was on my side. After I've paid you some, you would be able to pay me some uh, because mm. there is now money on both sides of the channel. You can think of that kind of like an abacus with the beads and you're just sliding them across. So I slide some beads mm -hmm. across to you. You slide some back to me and we keep on doing that. Until at some point we decide, okay, we put down the abacus and how many beads are on my side, how many beads are on your side, that's what we get paid out as UTXOs on chain at the end. So mm -hmm. yeah, there are different analogies for thinking about it. Um, and each of them has their strengths and weaknesses and limitations. Um, but yeah, it is, like you say, it's its own thing and uh, you know, no analogy is perfect. Well, Ben, I think we gave people a lot to think about. 
in this one episode. Um, cool. <laughs> it, it's I always love going back into the fundamentals because anytime I hear something explained in just a slightly different way, then it causes me to think more. So for folks that are listening to this, if you're like if you're tracking everything we talked about, good on you. It's pretty com- it's, it can be complex. If you're overwhelmed and like, what does all this mean? Uh, I'm going to post other other links and things for folks to follow up on. We're going to do more episodes like this. Um, I'm going to kind of post and share other folks that talk about these things day in and day out and do tutorials. Um, I would encourage everyone too to play around with different apps and tools uh, within Bitcoin and, and Lightning. And you'll kind of see the, the complex things that we started to touch on. You'll see it in reality. Uh, and there are varying levels, like I described, of it's kind of like, uh, a, again, a loose analogy. You're not going to know the inner workings of your laptop or your computer, right? We're talking, we were talking a lot about the behind the scenes stuff to try to get the point across of what is securing the Bitcoin network, why it is good money, and why we think Bitcoin is headed for a bright future and a very, very secure and stable future. That was kind of the point of this for, for my friend who was like, how does it work? What are the fundamentals? Well, this, this episode was was for you. So Ben, I want to thank you for doing this. I think you're one of the best to talk about this stuff, balancing, you know, n- not uh, balancing, you know, the technical components with giving some metaphors, but not doing it too lightly because some of the metaphors just won't work. Sometimes you have to get into it a little bit. So yeah, I appreciate your time and, and jumping into this conversation with me. No, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having the conversation and, uh, you know, I'd be happy to come back anytime for uh, you know, further talks. Absolutely. I think we'll definitely do that. All right. Thank you, Ben. Thanks.